Chapters three through seven of the Sincere Huron or L'Ingenue. This is a LibriVox recording in the public domain. This recording by Roy Schreiber. Chapter three The Huron Converted. The prior, finding that he was somewhat advanced in years, and that God had sent him a nephew for his consolation, took it into his head that he would resign his benefit in his favour if he succeeded in baptizing him, and of making him enter into orders. The Huron had an excellent memory. The firmness of the organs of Lower Brittany, strengthened by the climate of Canada, had made his head so vigorous that when he was struck upon it he scarce felt it, and when anything was graven in it nothing could efface it. Nothing had ever escaped his memory. His conception was the more sure and lively, by reason that his infancy had not been loaded with useless fooleries which overwhelm ours. Things entered into his head without being clouded. The prior at length resolved to make him read the New Testament. The Huron devoured it with great pleasure, but not knowing at what time, or in what country, all the adventures related in this book had happened, he did not in the least doubt that the scene of the action had been Lower Brittany, and he swore that he would cut off Cephas's and Pontius Pilate's ears if he ever met those scoundrels. His uncle, charmed with these good dispositions, soon brought him to the point. He applauded his zeal, but at the same time acquainted him that it was needless, as these people had been dead upwards of sixteen hundred and ninety years. The Hurons soon got the whole book by heart. He sometimes proposed difficulties that greatly embarrassed the prior. He was often obliged to consult the Abbe St. Ives, who, not knowing what to answer, brought a Jesuit of Lower Brittany to perfect the conversion of the Huron. Grace at length operated, and the Huron promised to become a Christian. He did not doubt but that the first step toward it was circumcision, for, said he, I do not find in the book that was put into my hands a single person who is not circumcised. It is therefore evident that I must make a sacrifice of my foreskin, and the sooner the better. He sent for the surgeon of the village, and desired him to perform the operation, thinking thereby greatly to rejoice Mademoiselle Kirkabon and all the company when the thing was once done. The surgeon, would never perform such an operation, acquainted the family, who screamed out. The good Kirkabon trembled, lest her nephew, whom she knew to be resolute and expeditious, should perform the operation unskillfully himself, and that fatal consequences should ensue in which the ladies, through the goodness of their hearts, are always concerned. The prior rectified the Huron's mistake, representing to him that circumcision was no longer in fashion, that baptism was much more gentle and salutary that the law of grace was not like the law of rigor. The Huron, who had much good sense, and was well disposed, disputed, but soon acknowledged his error, which seldom happens in Europe among disputants. In a word, he promised to let himself be baptized whenever they pleased. It was necessary that he should go previously to confession, and this was the greatest difficulty to surmount. The Huron had constantly in his pocket the book his uncle had given him. He did not find there that a single apostle had ever been confessed, and this made him very restive. The prior silenced him by showing him, in the epistle of St. James the Minor, these words, Confess your sins to one another. The Huron was mute, and confessed his sins to a recollet. When he had done, he dragged the recollet 
from the confessional chair, seizing him with a vigorous arm, placed himself in his seat, making the recollect kneel before him. Come, my friend, it is said we must confess our sins to one another. I have related my sins to you. You shall not stir until you recount yours. Whilst he said this, he fixed his great knee against his adversary's stomach. The recollect roared and groaned till he made the church echo. The noise brought people to his assistance, who found the catechumen cuffing the monk in the name of St. James the Minor. The joy at baptizing at once a lower Breton, a Huron, and an Englishman surmounted all these singularities. There were even some theologians of the opinion that confession was not necessary, as baptism supplied the place of everything. The Bishop of St. Malo was chosen for the ceremony, who, flattered as may be believed at baptizing a Huron, arrived in a pompous equipage, followed by his clergy. Mademoiselle St. Ives put on her best gown to bless God, and sent for a hairdresser from St. Malo to shine at the ceremony. The inquisitive bailiff brought the whole country with him. The church was magnificently ornamented, but when the Huron was summoned to attend the baptismal font, he was not to be found. His uncle and aunt sought for him everywhere. It was imagined he was gone a-hunting, according to his usual custom. Every one convened to the festival, searched the neighboring woods and villages, but no intelligence could be obtained of the Huron. They began to fear he was returned to England. Some remembered that he had said he was very fond of that country. The prior and his sister were persuaded that nobody was baptized there, and were troubled for their nephew's soul. The bishop was confounded, and ready to return home. The prior and the abbe of St. Ives were in despair. The bailiff interrogated all passengers with his usual gravity. Mademoiselle Kirkabon melted into tears. Mademoiselle St. Ives did not weep, but she vented such deep sighs as seemed to testify to her sacramental disposition. They were walking in this melancholy mood among the willows and the reeds upon the banks of the little river Rents, when they perceived in the middle of the stream a large figure, tolerably white, with its two arms across its breast. They screamed out and ran away, but curiosity being stronger than any other consideration, they slipped softly among the reeds, and when they were pretty certain they could not be seen, they were willing to decry what it was. Chapter 4 The Huron Baptized The prior and the abbe, having run to the riverside, they asked the Huron what he was doing. In faith, said he, gentlemen, I am waiting to be baptized. I have been an hour in the water up to my neck, and I do not think it civil to let me be quite spent. My dear nephew, said the prior to him tenderly, this is not the way of being baptized in Lower Brittany. Put on your clothes and come with us. Mademoiselle St. Ives, listening to the discourse, said in a whisper to her companion, Mademoiselle, do you think he will put on his clothes in such a hurry? The Huron, however, replied to the prior, You will not make me believe now as you did before. I have studied very well since, and I am very certain that there is no other kind of baptism. The eunuch of Queen Candace was baptized in a rivulet. I defy you to show me, in the book you gave me, that people were ever baptized any other way. I either will not be baptized at all, or the ceremony shall be performed in the river. 
it was in vain to remonstrate to him that customs altered he was headstrong for he was both a breton and a huron he always returned to the eunuch of queen candace and though mademoiselle and his aunt who had observed him through the willows were authorized to tell him that he had no right to quote such a man they nevertheless said nothing so great was their discretion the bishop came himself to speak to him which was a great thing but he could not prevail the huron disputed him show me said he in the book my uncle gave me one single man that was baptized in a river and i will do whatever you please his aunt in despair had observed the first time her nephew bowed he made a much lower, lower bow to mademoiselle st ives than to any one in the company that he had not even saluted the bishop with so much respect blended with cordiality as he did that agreeable young lady she thought it advisable to apply to her in this great embarrassment she entreated her to use her influence to engage the huron to be baptized according to the custom of brittany thinking that her nephew could never be a christian if he persisted in being christened in a stream mademoiselle st ives blushed at the secret pleasure she felt in being appointed to execute so important a commission she modestly approached the huron and squeezing his hand in quite a noble manner she said to him what will you do nothing to please me and in uttering these words she raised her eyes from a downcast look into a grateful tenderness oh yes mademoiselle everything you require all that you command whether it is to be baptized in water fire or blood there is nothing i can refuse you mademoiselle st ives had the glory of effecting in two words what neither the importunities of the prior the repeated interrogations of the bailiff or the reasoning of the bishop could effect she was sensible of her triumph but she was not yet sensible of its utmost latitude baptism was administered and received with all decency magnificence and propriety possible his uncle and aunt yielded to the abbe st ives and his sister the favour of supporting the huron upon the font mademoiselle st ives eyes sparkled with joy at being a godmother she was ignorant of the full extent to which this high title subjected her she accepted the honour without being acquainted with its fatal consequences as there never was any ceremony that was not followed by a good dinner the company took their seats at table after the christening the humorists of lower brittany said they did not choose to have their wine baptized the prior said that wine according to solomon cherished the heart of man the bishop added that the patriarch judea ought to have tied his ass-colt to the wine and steeped his cloak in the blood of the grape and that he was sorry the same could not be done in lower brittany to which god had not allotted vines every one endeavoured to say a good thing upon the huron's christening and strokes of gallantry to the godmother the bailiff ever interrogating asked the huron if he was faithful in keeping his promises how said he can i fail to keep them since i have deposited them in the hands of mademoiselle st ives huron grew warm he had drank plentifully to his godmother's health if said he i had been baptized with your hand i feel that the water which was poured upon the nape of my neck would have burnt me the bailiff thought this was too poetical being ignorant that allegory is a familiar figure in canada 
but his godmother was very well pleased. Huron had, at his baptism, received the name of Hercules. The bishop of St. Marlowe frequently inquired who was this titular saint whom he had never heard mentioned before. The Jesuit, who was a very learned man, told him that he was a saint who had wrought twelve miracles. There was a thirteenth, which was well worth the other twelve, but it was not proper for a Jesuit to mention it. It was the transforming of fifty girls into women in one night's time. A wag, who is present, related this miracle very feelingly. The ladies all cast down their eyes, and judged from the physiognomy of the Huron that he was worthy of the saint whose name he bore. Chapter Five: The Huron in Love. It must be acknowledged that from the time of this christening and this dinner, Mademoiselle Saint Ives passionately wished that the bishop would make her again an assistant with Monsieur Hercules in some other fine ceremony. However, as she was well brought up and very modest, she did not dare entirely agree with herself in regard to these tender sentiments. But if a look, a word, a gesture, a thought escaped from her, she concealed it admirably well under the veil of modesty. She was tender, lively, and sagacious. As soon as the bishop was gone, the Huron and Mademoiselle St. Ives met together, without thinking they were in search of one another. They spoke together without premeditating what they said. The sincere youth immediately declared that he loved her with all his heart, and that the beauteous Abakeba, with whom he had been desperately in love in his own country, was far inferior to her. Mademoiselle replied, with her usual modesty, that the prior her uncle and the lady her aunt should be spoken to immediately, and that, on her side, she would say a few words to her dear brother, the Abbe of St. Ives, and that she flattered herself that it would meet with no opposition. The youth replied that the consent of any one was entirely superfluous, that it appeared to him extremely ridiculous to go and ask others what they were to do, that when two parties were agreed, there was no occasion for a third to accomplish their union. I never consult with any one, said he, when I have a mind to breakfast, to hunt, or to sleep. I am sensible that in love it is not amiss to have the consent of the person whom we wish for. But as I am neither in love with my uncle nor my aunt, I have no occasion to address myself to them in this affair, and if you will believe me, you may equally dispense with the advice of the Abbe St. Ives. It may be supposed that the young lady exerted all the delicacy of her wit to bring the Huron to the terms of good breeding. She was even angry, but soon softened. In a word, it cannot be said how the conversation would have ended if the declining day had not brought the abbe to conduct his sister home. The Huron left his uncle and aunt to rest, being somewhat fatigued with the ceremony and their long dinner. He passed part of the night in writing verses in the Huron language upon his well-beloved, for it should be known there is no country where love has not rendered lovers poets. The next day his uncle spoke to him in the following manner after breakfast in the presence of Mademoiselle Kirkabong, who was quite melted at the discourse. Heaven be praised that you have the honor, my dear nephew, to be a Christian of Lower Brittany. But this is not enough. I am somewhat advanced in years. My brother has left only a little bit of ground, which is a very small matter. I have a good priory. If you will only make yourself sub as I hope you will, I will resign my priory in your favor, 
and you will live quite at your ease after having been the consolation of my old age. The Huron replied, Uncle, much may be due you. Live as long as you can. I do not know what it is to be a sub-Dinkin, or what it is to resign, but everything will be agreeable to me, provided I have Mademoiselle St. Ives at my disposal. Good God, nephew, what is it you say? You love that beautiful young lady to distraction? Yes, uncle. Alas, nephew, it is impossible you should ever marry her. It is very possible, uncle, for she not only squeezed my hand when she left me, but she promised she would ask me in marriage. I certainly shall wed her. It is impossible, I tell you. She is your godmother. It is a dreadful sin for a godmother to give her hand to her godson. It is contrary to all laws human and divine. Why the deuce, uncle, should it be forbidden to marry one's godmother when she is young and handsome? I do not find in the book you gave me that it was wrong to marry young women who assisted in christenings. I perceive every day that an infinite number of things are done here which are not in your book, and nothing is done that is said in it. I must acknowledge to you that this astonishes and displeases me. If I am deprived of the charming Mademoiselle St. Ives on account of my baptism, I give you notice. I will run away with her and unbaptize myself. The prior was confounded. His sister wept. My dear brother, said she, our nephew must not damn himself. Our holy father the Pope can give him a dispensation, and then he may be happy, in a Christian-like manner, the person he likes. The ingenuous Hercules embraced his aunt. For God's sake, said he, who is this charming man who is so gracious as to promote the amours of girls and boys? I will go and speak to him this instant. The dignity and character of the Pope was explained to him, and the Huron was still more astonished than before. My dear uncle, said he, there is not a word of all this in your book. I have travelled, and am acquainted with the sea. We are now upon the coast of the ocean, and I must leave Mademoiselle St. Ives to go and ask leave to have her of a man who lives towards the Mediterranean, four hundred leagues from hence, and whose language I do not understand. This is most incomprehensibly ridiculous, but I will go first to the Abbe of St. Ives, who lives only a league from hence, and I promise you I will wed my mistress before night. Whilst he was yet speaking, the bailiff entered, and, according to his usual custom, asked him where he was going. I am going to be married, replied the ingenuous Hercules running along, and in less than a quarter of an hour he was with his charming dear mistress, who was still asleep. Ah, my dear brother, said Mademoiselle Kirkabon to the prior, you will never make a sub-deacon of our nephew. The bailiff was very much displeased at this journey, for he had laid claim to Mademoiselle St. Ives in favour of his son, who was a still greater and more insupportable fool than his father. CHAPTER Six: The Huron flies to his mistress and becomes quite furious. No sooner had the ingenuous Hercules reached the house than having asked an old servant which was his mistress's apartment, he forced open the door, which was badly fastened, and flew toward the bed. Mademoiselle St. Ives, startled out of her sleep, cried, "'Ah, what? Is it you? Stop! What are you about?' he answered. "'I am going to marry.' And he would, actually, have consummated nuptials, if she had not opposed him with all the decency of a young lady so well educated. The Huron did not understand raillery. He found all these evasions extremely impertinent. 
Miss Abakaba, my first mistress, did not behave in this manner. You have no honesty. You promised me marriage, and you will not marry. This is being deficient in the first law of honor. I will teach you to keep your word, and I will replace you in the path of virtue. He possessed an intrepid masculine virtue, worthy of his namesake Hercules, whose name he was given at his christening, and he was going to practice it in all its latitude, and the alarming outcries of the lady, more discreetly virtuous, brought the sagacious Abbe de St. Ives and his housekeeper, an old devotee servant, and the parish priest. The sight of these moderated the courage of the assailant. "'Good God!' cried the Abbe. "'My dear neighbour, what are you about?' "'My duty,' replied the young man. "'I am fulfilling my promises, which are sacred.' Mademoiselle St. Ives adjusted herself, not without blushing. The lover was conducted into another apartment. The Abbe remonstrated to him the enormity of his conduct. The Huron defended himself upon the privileges of the law of nature, which he understood perfectly well. The Abbe maintained that the law positive should be allowed all its advantages, and that without conventions agreed upon between men, the law of nature would almost constantly be nothing more than natural felony. Notaries, priests, witnesses, contracts, and dispensations are absolutely necessary. The ingenuous Hercules made answer with the observation constantly adopted by savages. You are then great rogues, since so many precautions are necessary. This remark somewhat disconcerted the abbe. There are, I acknowledge, libertines and cheats among us, and there would be as many among the Hurons if they were united in a great city. But at the same time we have discreet, honest, enlightened people, and these are the men who have framed the laws. The more upright we are, the more readily we should submit to them, as we thereby set an example to the vicious who respect those bounds which virtue has given herself. This answer struck the Huron. It has already been observed that his mind was well disposed. He was softened by flattering speeches which promised him hopes all the world is caught in these snares, and Mademoiselle St. Ives herself appeared, after having been at her toilet. Everything was now conducted with the utmost good breeding, but notwithstanding this decorum, the sparkling eyes of the ingenuous Hercules constantly made his mistress blush, and the company tremble. It was with much difficulty he was sent back to his relations. It was again necessary for the charming Mademoiselle St. Ives to interfere. The more she found the influence she had upon him, the more she loved him. She made him depart, and was much afflicted at it. At length, when he was gone, the abbé, who was not only Mademoiselle St. Ives' elder brother by many years, but also her guardian, endeavoured to wean his ward from the importunities of this dreadful lover. He went to consult the bailiff, who had always intended his son for the abbé's sister and advised him to place the poor girl in a convent. This was a terrible stroke. Such a measure would, to a young lady unaffected with any particular passion, have been inexpressible punishment, but to a lovesick maid, equally sagacious and tender, it was despair itself. When the ingenuous Hercules returned to the priors, he related all that had happened with his usual frankness. He met with the same remonstrances which had some effect upon his mind, though none upon his senses. But the next day, when he wanted to return to his mistress, in order to reason with her upon the law of nature and the law of convention, the bailiff acquainted him with insulting joy that she was in a convent. "'Very well,' said he. 
I'll go and reason with her in this convent. That cannot be, said the bailiff, and then entered into a long explanation of the nature of a convent, telling him that this word was derived from conventus in Latin, which signifies an assembly. The Huron could not comprehend why he might not be admitted to this assembly. He was informed that this assembly was a kind of prison in which girls were shut up, a shocking institution unknown in Huronia and in England. He became furious, as was his namesake Hercules, when Eurytus, king of the Ochalia, not less cruel than the abbe of St. Ives, refused him the beauteous Iola, his daughter, not inferior in beauty to the abbe's sister. He was upon the point of going to set fire to the convent and to carry off his mistress, or be burnt with her. Mademoiselle Kirkabon, terrified at such a declaration, gave up all hope of ever seeing her nephew a subdeacon, and weeping said, The devil was certainly in him since he has been christened. Chapter 7 The Huron Repulses the English The ingenuous Hercules walked toward the sea-coast, wrapped in a deep and gloomy melancholy, with his double-charged fusee upon his shoulder and his cutlass by his side, shooting now and then a bird, and often tempted to shoot himself. But he had still some affection for life, for the sake of his dear mistress. By turns cursing his uncle and aunt, all lower Brittany and his christening, and then blessing them, as they had introduced him to the knowledge of her he loved. He resolved upon going to burn the convent, and he stopped short for fear of burning his mistress. The waves of the channel are not more agitated by the easterly and westerly winds than was his heart by so many contrary emotions. He was walking very fast along, without knowing whither he was going, when he heard the beat of a drum. He saw at a great distance a vast multitude, part of whom ran toward the coast, and the other part flew from it. A thousand shrieks echoed on every side. Curiosity and courage hurried him that instant toward the spot where the greatest clamor arose, which he attained in a few steps. The commander of the militia, who had supped with him at the priors, knew him immediately, and he ran to the Huron with open arms. Ah, it is the sincere American! He will fight for us! Upon which the militia, which were almost dead with fear, recovered themselves, crying out with one voice, It is the Huron, the ingenuous Huron! Gentlemen, said he, what is the matter? Why are you so scared? Have they shut your mistresses up in convents? Instantly a thousand confused voices cried out, Do you not see the English who are landing? Very well, said the Huron. They are brave people. They never proposed making me a subdeacon. They never carried off my mistress. The commander made him understand that they were coming to pillage the Abbey of the Mountain, drink his uncle's wine, and perhaps carry off Mademoiselle St. Ives, that the little vessel which had set him on shore in Brittany had come only to reconnoitre the coast, that they were committing acts of hostility without having declared war against France, and that the province was entirely exposed to them. If this be the case, said he, they violate the law of nature. Let me alone. I lived a good while among them. I am acquainted with their language, and I will speak to them. I cannot think that they have so wicked a design. During this conversation, the English fleet approached. The Huron ran toward it, and having jumped into a little boat, soon rowed to the admiral's ship, and, having gone on board, asked whether it was true that they were come to ravage the coast without having honestly declared war. The admiral and all his crew burst into laughter, made him drink some punch, and sent him back. The ingenuous Hercules, 
piqued at this reception, thought now of nothing else but beating his old friends for his countrymen and the prior. The gentlemen of the neighborhood ran from all quarters and joined them. They had some cannon, and he discharged them one after the other. The English landed, and he flew toward them when he killed three of them with his own hands. He even wounded the admiral who had made a joke of him. The whole militia were animated with his prowess. The English returned to their ships and went on board and the whole coast echoed with the shouts of victory long live the king long live the ingenuous hercules every one ran to embrace him every one strove to stop the bleeding of some slight wounds he had received ah said he if mademoiselle st ives were here she would put on a plaster for me the bailiff who had hid himself in his cellar during the battle came to pay his compliments like the rest but he was greatly surprised when he heard the ingenuous Hercules say to a dozen young men well disposed for his service who surrounded him, My friends, having delivered the Abbey of the Mountains is nothing. We must rescue a nymph. The warm blood of these youth were fired at the expression. He was already followed by crowds who repaired to the convent. If the bailiff had not immediately acquainted the commandant with their design, and he had not sent a detachment after the joyous troop, the thing would have been done. The Huron was conducted back to his uncle and aunt, who overwhelmed him with tears and tenderness. I see very well, said his uncle, that you will never be either a subdeacon or a prior. You will be an officer, and one still braver than my brother, the captain, and probably as poor. Mademoiselle Kirkabon could not stop an incessant flood of tears, whilst she embraced him, saying, He will be killed, too, like my brother. It were much better he were a subdeacon. The Huron had, during the battle, picked up a large purse full of guineas, which probably the admiral lost. He had no doubt that this purse would buy all Lower Brittany, and, above all, make Mademoiselle St. Ives a great lady. Every one persuaded him to repair to Versailles to receive the recompense due his service. The commandant and the principal officers furnished him with certificates in abundance. The uncle and aunt also approved this journey. He was to be presented to the king without any difficulty. This alone would give him great weight in the province. These two good folks added to the English purse a considerable present out of their own savings. The Huron said to himself, When I see the king, I will ask Mademoiselle St. Ives of him in marriage, and certainly he will not refuse me. He set out accordingly, amidst the acclamations of the whole district, stifled with embraces, bathed in tears by his aunt, blessed by his uncle, and recommending himself to the charming Mademoiselle St. Ives. The end of chapters 3 through 7